Thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you through his word. We trust that in seeing him, you will be moved to take your next step in loving God and loving others. If there's any way we can serve you, please reach out through mountainside.online. Well, when I was 12 years old, I played in a Little League football team, and we were the Sycamore Jets, and this was right around the time of Namath and the Miracle Super Bowl III, and so we wore our green colors with pride. I even had a pair of white kangaroo football cleats, like Joe Namath. And our coach got these stickers, the Fu Manchu, or no, it was the Kung Fu Dragon. And if you were a starter, you had a Kung Fu Dragon on your helmet. It was, it was great. And uh, season's going along, and we lost a game. And so the coach, after the game, said, practice on Saturday. Well, he didn't know it, but I had plans for Saturday. My, all my friends were, and I were going to the Ohio State Fair. And uh, in fact, Eric Messer's mom was one of that group. Um, so I remember on the way home saying to my dad, well, got practice on Saturday, but you know, I can't go because I'm going to the Ohio State Fair. And uh, my dad was quiet for a moment. He says, I thought you were on the team. Well, I am, but they weren't supposed to have practice, and it's just because we, you know, every excuse I can think, it's just because we lost. Coach is punishing us. But I thought you were on the team. Yeah, but, um, you know, we're just going to run laps. We're going to do drills that hurt. It's just going to be an awful, awful practice. And, you know, I've had these plans for a long time. And so my dad basically gave me a choice to continue with the team or go to the Ohio State Fair. Um, I remember being so angry with my dad and knowing there was no working my way out of this and knowing that I did want to play football that I remember when I got in the car to be taken to practice that Saturday, I sat in the back seat as far away from the driver as I possibly could. I just didn't want to be near my dad. I was so angry. So what was my dad trying to do in this case? Was he trying to teach me that football's more important than fairs? Or was there something much deeper? My dad was trying to teach me that uh, responsibility comes before fun. Coaches were going to be there, and the team, at least those who were responsible, were going to be there. And if I was part of the team, I had to be there. My dad wasn't spoiling my fun, my fun, and after a while, over the years maybe, I began to understand what dad was doing in that time. He was introducing me to something far more profound, and that is that doing the right thing, whether it's fun or not, is its own reward. In fact, really, at 12 years old, my dad was inviting me to live like an adult. And you know, there's people who never learned this. We all know people who still choose fun over responsibility, and it carries a heavy price, right? I mean, it is an awful thing. And so in the last 50 years, imagine how many times I have been faced with choices. And sometimes, even still, my mind goes back to that day of, are you going to go to the Ohio State Fair, or are you going to do the responsible thing and, and go to the team? 
Failing to do the right thing can be so costly, and it's the same thing in life. Uh, this, the, so many students that are here, many of you have grown up in Christian homes, and so you had to go to church, and you had to have your devotions, and you probably had to memorize scripture and all of this kind of stuff, and then you go to a school that requires those things too, but there's coming a day when you graduate, and no one's going to tell you what to do. In fact, your boss will say, be here at 8 in the morning, but he's not going to call you at 7 to be sure that you're up. Um, you're going to have to decide to choose the right thing. Similar to that, we went through a season with one of our kids, um, and he was doing these things like texting in the middle of the night. And when I said, uh, uh, you know, we don't want you to text between 2 and 3 in the morning. He says, well, you never told me that. Then one of his concerned sisters uh, let us know that at night he was climbing out of his bedroom window to sit on the roof. Um, so I, we don't want you to do that. Well, you never told me not to do that. So I sat him down one day and I says, okay, you know how if I came in the mor into your room at 2 in the morning and you were texting, you would hide the phone? And you know how if you heard me opening the door, you would jump in through the window to try to get in the bed? All of those kinds of things, that what is what I don't want you to do. <laughs> right? What am I saying to him? You know what the right thing is. If you're going to hide it from me, then you know you shouldn't be doing it. Or at least I, as your parent, don't want you to be doing that. We're talking about the heart. And over and over again in the Old Testament... Um, God had laid down rules for Israel, but over 850 times the Old Testament speaks of the word heart. And God was not just asking them to obey the letter of the law, but he was seeking to go deeper to the heart. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it's still Old Testament time, we don't have New Testament, and so he's speaking to Israel and to the leaders of Israel, and he's saying to them, uh, and he's addressing the heart. In the very first message that we have in the New Testament of Jesus speaking, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, an amazing message, one that you could spend weeks preaching through. He uses this, these two phrases, you have heard, but I say. Listen to this. He said, you've heard you should not commit adultery, but I say to you to lust in your heart is the sin of adultery. You have heard, don't murder. But I say to you that hate in your heart is the sin of murder. You've heard, if you want a divorce, give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, unless there's been adultery, you are the one breaking the marriage covenant. You've heard it said, don't give false witnesses by using trickery. The idea was making a promise with your hands crossed, fingers crossed behind your back. I say to you, keep your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. And I say to you, turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. He said, don't give for people to notice because that will be a reward. God will not be impressed. Your motives are not right. Don't pray in such a way that people go, wow, what a great prayer warrior. Because that'll be a reward. Don't fast in a way 
that draws attention to people, that'll be your reward. God will not be impressed. Don't store up your fortune on earth, but think in terms of eternity and, and store your treasures there. This is all in one message. And what is Jesus driving home? There was a problem in Israel at that time where they were following the letter of the law, looking for loopholes. And Jesus is saying to them that there's something beyond the law, something deeper than the law, and that's the principle, and that is what the heart is supposed to be. You'll not be surprised, and most of you probably know this, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest rule? What's the greatest law? He says this, teacher, which is most important, the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second one is equally important. He's saying these, are, these stand at the top. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Jesus is saying everything in the Old Testament is teaching you how to love God and how to love others, which is a heart thing. The last evening that Jesus was with his followers, John 13, he says this. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. This is literally within hours of him being arrested. And as I told you, the Jewish leaders will search for me, but they can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another, listen to this carefully, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Love is a proof of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus is giving permission to the world to judge whether you are a follower of Jesus based on your love. That's a scary thought. You know, love's a funny word, isn't it? We use love to describe so many things. I love that we have a Chinese restaurant now, right? I mean, we've got, the family got Chinese on Friday night, and probably three times somebody said, oh, I just can't believe that the, we have our own Chinese restaurant. It just was so fun. I love Marie's pies at Pickens. When I lived in Jersey, I would sometimes have people call me from Pickens and say, guess what I'm eating? <coughs> Tom Farrell. Um, <laughs> so I, even more than that, love football, Formula One. Watching the Bengals win yesterday was, was amazing. More than that, I love music and I love to study. And at the top of my love list is my wife, Ruthie. Same word. Big difference. So let's take a few minutes and let's examine what the New Testament says about love. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what's so amazing about this passage. It was written 2,000 years ago. Think about that. We're talking about uh, 1,500 years before Shakespeare's beautiful writings. 
And virtually no one would ever argue that this is the most profound statement about love in the world. For 2,000 years, weddings in every Christian culture, every culture that has the Bible, uh, so many weddings read this. Whether they believe the Bible or not, they recognize this to be a beautiful thing. And Jesus says that love for others is the greatest. We need to give full attention. If Jesus says we can judge whether we're a follower by a love, we need to pay attention. And even that Jesus said we're to love our enemies. C.S. Lewis on that love your enemies wrote, and this is during World War II while bombs are dropping on his head, so to speak. He says, if we love our enemies, if, so loving my enemies does not apparently mean that I find them nice. And he also wrote, so apparently I'm allowed to loathe and hate some of the things my enemies do. But in his chapter on forgiveness, he reminds us that love, when we love our enemies, they become our neighbors. That we are to feed them when they're hungry and we're to give them water when they're thirsty. And so let's examine 1 Corinthians 13. The verses will be on the, on the screen behind, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. If I could speak with all the languages of earth and of angels and didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I could speak every language, if I was the most profound speaker, if I'm not loving, I would be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, now, my alarm on my phone, every one, I have like five or six that I set from different times and different days. Uh, I wake up to Dan Fogelberg's To the Morning, which starts off real gentle, and the guitars build, and then he sings so sweetly, sweet singing of the sunrise. It didn't always used to be that way. It used to be, and some of you are too young to maybe even have ever heard of this, but we used to have alarm clocks that you would wind and when that went off, it would bang between two bells. How many remember that? And then the next generation remembers we had these clocks you plugged into the wall, and uh, they would have this hideous buzzer, as, as awful as you could make it. Uh, so one year I worked at the Word of Life Lodge, and I was the baker, and I had to get up at uh, 4 in the morning to, be, to make donuts or coffee cake for the morning. And Glenn Slothauer was in the room next to mine. So I set my alarm for like 3.45. And one morning I woke up 3.30, jumped out of bed, went and took a shower. And about 15 minutes later, I hear this banging on the bathroom door. Your alarm is going off. That, <laughs> That's what a person without love is to God. See, because I read these three verses and I think... Isn't it better than nothing? Isn't eloquence better than nothing? Look at the next one. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Abundantly gifted, brilliant, and great faith. The wisdom of Solomon, the courage of David, the leadership of Moses, the faith of Abraham, the intellect of Paul. If I do not have, not have love, nothing. Verse 3, if I gave everything to 
everything I have to the poor and even sacrifice my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. This verse is staggering. I empty my bank account and all my possessions to the needy, even lay down my life as a sacrifice for people. If I'm not loving, nothing. You see, we must understand what love is if our life is going to amount to anything before God. And so now Paul, writing to Corinthians, is going to describe love. Remember, this is the defining characteristic. In fact, this this clears up one thing. Our preaching, our teaching, our giftedness, our evangelism, our good works do not define us as a Christian. Love. Do you understand that? The best preacher, the most gifted individual, the most sacrificial individual does not equal follower of Jesus. Love, it has to be there. So what is love? Love is patient. Patient literally has the idea of being long-tempered. Do you ever get frustrated with others? I've used enough illustrations over the years to know that uh, slow people, late people, people don't keep their promises. This is the arena in which we demonstrate patience. It's, it's amazing living in a small town where everybody knows, everybody knows who you are, whether you think they do or not. And so with last Saturday for the old-time Christmas, I went into one of the shops just to buy something. And, and the person in front of me, very wonderful person, I'm sure, you know, when they paid for it, they, and there's a line behind me, they closed their checking account, checking book, opened the purse, put the checkbook in the purse, rummaged around, pulled out their keys, put it in their pocket, zipped the purse, put on their coat, snuggled up their, their and everybody's kind of like, that's what this verse is talking about. Be patient and kind. Just as patience will endure in the sense of taking what frustrates us, kindness is the way we respond to that person with gentleness. We don't need to be told these things in this verse to be with the people we enjoy, right? It's when we're tested that kindness and patience are tested. And so when God says love is patient and kind, he's talking about those that frustrate us. You know what God whispers? He's even whispering it to me right now in a sense. Um, how often he gets frustrated with me, right? Imagine God in the throne watching me live my life, and he defines himself. The very first time we see God revealed is in the later chapters of Exodus. I think it's Exodus 33 or 34 where he says, I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. So now we see eight things that are not love. Love is not jealous, Love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. Jealousy or envy usually takes one of two forms. 
When we're jealous of somebody, what are we hoping for? We're hoping for calamity. We're hoping that somehow they fail and even the score, so to speak. And even worse is we begin to uh, start to think of how we might add calamity to their life. And the opposite of that is love is not boastful. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Boasting is wanting you to want what I have. So jealousy puts others down while bragging builds us up. And love is not proud. A, A person, a humble person, recognizes that so much of what they have, they didn't work for. You know, it could be genetics, your good looks, or your smarts, or your athletic ability, or, or propensity towards music or art or whatever that is. It, it, it's like a head start. Of course you have to work hard to excel. And the family you grow up in, a loving, affirming family or Christian home, and of course you have to work hard. And opportunities, you know, when I, when I was 22, I got a phone call from an old basketball coach who says, I'm starting a company. How would you like to come and work for me? I would have worked for him for anything. Just an opportunity. Now I had to work hard when I got the job. So it's not negating working hard, but it's understanding that so much of our life we have nothing to be proud of. And if people knew everything about us, we would not be proud. Verse 5, love is not rude. A rude person does not care about how other people think. You know, the word rude person in the restaurant doesn't care what other people are feeling as they act rudely. It doesn't demand its own way. Oh, this is a tough one, right? Human nature, we're born wanting our own way. I mean, right from birth, a child cries for what they don't have. We grow up thinking that we have it all figured out. And we can't imagine that somebody else could have a different idea. I have a personality that at times I can push things too far in trying to win an argument. So there have been times in my life where I've had a deacon sit next to me in a meeting and his responsibility is to tap me if I'm to shut up. And I've been tapped, and I did shut up, and then I give them responsibility to move the discussion forward, and then I have said everything that I need to say, and to say more would not be beneficial. It's not irritable. It means the idea of being aroused to anger, that outburst of emotions listen to the deeds of the flesh. It fits well with the previous argument, because when we don't get our way, when people aren't going in our direction, we can explode with anger. Love keeps no record of being wronged. Boy, this is a biggie. You know, in a, in a marriage that has difficulties, and most marriages, it's not that it's 50-50. There can be one person who's more of a problem, but over time, each can build up a case against the other that seems non-negotiable. They cannot comprehend somehow laying down the case against the other person. And when you start to get bent like that, uh, you start to build a case about this person. And so keeping a record of wrongs is so deadly 
it's, what is it, the saying, it's like eating rat poisoning and waiting for the rat to die. It does nothing to the other person, but it just destroys our insides. Romans chapter 4, verse 8 says, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. I've used that example a number of times. I can't think of a better way to say it. But when I come to God for forgiveness of my sins, it's in a sense, this is an illustration that God goes to my file, pulls out my record of my sin, walks to the Jesus file, and inserts my record into Jesus' file, takes Jesus' perfect record, and then inserts it into mine. If God doesn't keep a record, why should I? It does not rejoice. Now, five positive actions of love. It does not rejoice about injustice. It rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love takes love never takes satisfaction for sin. To rejoice in unrighteousness is to justify it. Love does not take the side of mean people. Woe to those who cause evil good, Isaiah says. The four statements of these five are hyperbole. It means they're big statements to make a point. Love never gives up. The standard is God's tolerance in my life. A life that will never fully become like Jesus, yet God in his word has promised that he will never give up. Love never loses faith. There's always a chance for change. It always believes in the outcome. Even in the face of repeated failure, it holds out that there is hope. Repeated failure may carry consequences, even with the person that holds out hope. They might not be trusted with money or with a car or whatever. But even though we would impose limits and safeguards, it still does not lose hope. It's always hopeful. It always looks to the future. Even when belief in a loved one and a loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. As long as God's grace is operative, there is hope. It endures through every circumstance. Endure is a military term used of an army's holding or a vital position at all costs. Every hardship and every bit of suffering was to be endured to hold fast. There's no after in endurance. Endurance is the unending climax of love. In recovery programs, one of the things that is said over and over throughout a meeting is keep coming back. When you fail, don't even hesitate to come back because we have hope, we have faith, we never give up, we never lose faith. We endure through every circumstance with the belief that you can do this. And so finally, in verse 8, love never fails. Now, I'm going to jump to verse 13 because I find it one of the most surprising verses in the scripture. It says three things that will last forever. Three biblical words, faith, hope, and love. Faith is believing what God has said. Hope is the future tense, is, is a sense of well-being because of the security we have in the promises made. If you had asked me to rank those words, I would rank them just as they're written. Faith, hope, and love. There is not, no way that I would have, without knowing the verse, put love at the top. But that's exactly what Paul does. 
The greatest of these words is love. The greatest commandment is love, God, love others. So why is loving so important? Three reasons, and they all build on each other. First, God is love. 1 John 4, 16, we know how much God loves us. We've put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. God does not merely say that he is loving. He says that he is love. Where would we be if God was not loving, as described in 1 Corinthians 13? Second, God loves the world. Now, when John uses the world, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When, when John uses that wor- word, he's thinking of the world as a mess. He's not speaking necessarily of the globe. He's speaking of the mess. Uh, later, John will say, love not the world. He's talking about the world system, the lust and the flesh and so on. It's probably the thing you hear most, especially lately, right? The world is a mess. Every time we say that's not right, we're acknowledging that we know of a standard that's being violated. And uh, C.S. Lewis addresses this so well in mere Christianity, for example. There are a couple things that everyone longs for. One is purity. We want love, even if we behave in a way that's not loving. We want kindness, even if we're unkind. We want to be treated fairly, even if we're a cheat. It seems we all agree on what's right even though we fail to follow it. We have a standard for other people that we want them to not cheat, to be loving, and all of these kinds of things, and that yet we continue to to fail. But there's a deep-seated longing in every person for things to be right. People long not only for things to be right, but they long for eternity. We want to think that this is not all that there is. When a loved one dies, inevitably we will hear they've gone to a better place. And everyone has a deep-seated sense in the very fiber of their being that there has to be more. Even people that believe in a naturalistic origin of the universe begins with an explosion and then uh, proceeds through survival of the fittest, and yet somehow has this sense of what the Garden of Eden was like described in the Bible and say, that's the way things should be. And the Bible tells us that God made the world right and then it failed, humans failed, and that Jesus came to make it right. He gives his life for our sins and God raises him on the third day to show that death will ultimately conquer. And this is where we come in. This is why love is so important. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the same writer, the same receiver of the letters that 1 Corinthians 13, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God's design is to be reconciled to the world. To be reconciled means to bring people back to a right relationship, to restore a broken relationship. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are God's ambassadors. 
God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for sin, so that we might be made right with God through Christ. So God has given us the task of sharing this news of hope. God is love. God loves the world. The world is broken. People see that it's broken, but we can proclaim God loves you. So who would you listen to? Would you listen to a loving person or a hateful person? It makes a difference, doesn't it? Can I say that many of us have forfeited the opportunity to share our faith because of our rudeness? When I was a teenager, there were three men. None of these men are alive today. They were in the same business. They were two angry men, always sarcastic, always negative, and a third man that was always smiling and always kind. And one day, the kind man came to fix something where I was working. And as he walked away, a Christian friend of mine said, uh, we need to pray for him because he doesn't believe in God's free gift of salvation. And I, I, was, I was dumbfounded. What? And my friend said to me, why would he believe when the only Christians he knows are always angry, sarcastic, and negative? Wow, that just hit me so profoundly. What do they have that he doesn't have? And so God has given us the privilege of bringing hope to a world that needs the answers. Stop and think about it. We've been given the message of reconciliation that God has said that we are to ask people to be reconciled to God and we can completely forfeit that privilege if we're not loving. Our life is to be light in a dark place. When I was a teenager, again, I was working at one of the other camps at Word of Life and I drove my car onto the property and had to park far away from my cabin and I got out and started to walk and a drunk driver hit a power line and the power went out and it was a dark night with clouds and I couldn't see anything. I mean, when I say I couldn't see, there was nothing because the whole lake was out of lights. And all of a sudden I realized I don't even know where I am. And I remember I got down on all fours to feel if I was on grass, dirt, or pavement. That's how bad it was. And then my friend opened up his car door and I screamed, keep your door open, keep your door open. And I started running in case he would close the door. See, that's the way our life is to be a light that people be drawn to. So don't miss this. The defining characteristic of a Christian is loving. It means a follower of Christ is patient. A follower of Christ is kind. A follower of Christ is not jealous. A follower of Christ is not boastful, is not proud, is not rude. A follower of Christ does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. A follower of Christ doesn't keep a record of being wrong. A follower of Christ does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when truth wins out, never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance, will last forever. 
we have to ask ourselves, what does our life say about God? What do people think of you? Do they see a loving person? You see, let's bring this around full circle. My dad was inviting me to embrace responsibility. He just didn't want me to do it this one time. His intention was that I would change the course of my life and I would behave responsibly. Jesus, when he preached, he said, you know the rule, but the rule is to be going to the heart. And the call to love, listen carefully, the call of love is not to love because I have to. There's a difference between I love you because I have to and I love you. In fact, rules can spoil love. I introduced my daughters to the writer O. Henry at Christmas. There was a Christmas special with Mickey Mouse, and uh, Mickey had a harmonica that he loved, and Minnie had a watch that she loved, and Mickey sold his harmonica to buy a chain for a watch, and she sold her watch to buy a case for his harmonica. And I said to my junior high girls, hey, do you know O. Henry? Who? So I bought them on Kindle, the O. Henry complete works, and said, why don't you read these four... Four short stories, and we'll talk about it when you come up for Christmas. They're students, so that wasn't a horrible thing to say to them. But love was expressed when each of them sold the most valuable thing to buy a gift for the other. The, the thing that spoils love is if I said to Ruthie, um, hey, I got tickets to, to a play tonight, and uh, let's go out to dinner. And she says, why would you do that? And I said, well, I was talking to Lyle about the problems we were having. He said to try this. <laughs> and it's not going to work. In fact, Ruthie would call Lyle and say, what? You see, what was the point? It was good advice. But if I did it because of the list, it doesn't work. But if I did it because of the change of heart, and that's this point. We have to love. I have to love. It's a profound difference. I love you because God demands it, or I do love you. No one really wants to hear I love you because it's demanded. David must learn to love. Now, I understand that takes work. It takes growth. It takes work to love somebody that I don't begin with liking them. I'm not called to just merely love each other with God's love, but with God's help, God calls me to love them. Don't misunderstand that God wants to create in me a loving heart as described in 1 Corinthians 13. Back to football, when I went to practice, I did not act like I wanted to be there. But over time, I began to see the value of what I was being told and through probably other experiences, my heart began to change. When we realize how much our heart falls short of loving people, that we, we're a frustrated person, that we, we hate certain people and their political views or whatever. Um, last week, I preached on going to God boldly for help in time of need 
And it says that with the God that we find there is gracious and merciful to help us. And so you could take last week as the setup for this week. That's what we do. We go to God and say, you have to change me. Man, there have been things I've tried to do in my life, and I, and I sometimes just get on my knees before God and just say, I can't do it. I just, I just won't do it. You're just going to have to change me. I just can't do it. What does 2 Peter say? That God's given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. A real transforming moment came for me when I heard the song, Let Me See This World, Dear Lord. It's a song from the 70s. In fact, Patty Fisher used to sing it, and you know, we're talking 40 years after she sang it. She hardly remembered singing it, and I said, would you sing that again? And she's like, I don't, you know, she's just, no, I'm not going to sing it again. Here's the words. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes, a world of men who don't want you, but a world for which you died. Let me kneel with you in the garden and blur my eyes with tears of agony, for if once I could see the world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. And I remember being in a stadium. It was the old veteran stadium in Philadelphia. And I remember thinking the words of these songs and looking at tens of thousands of people and thinking, what does God see when he looks? When you encounter an individual, ask God, let me see them the way you see them. This is someone for whom Christ died. This is someone who longs for peace, who longs for love, who longs for hope, who longs for eternal life. The person you don't like, the person you've fallen out with, the person you disagree with, this is someone for whom Christ died. This is someone who longs for peace and love and hope and eternal life. And you begin to find that God will break your heart and you will learn to love you'll begin. And our light then pushes back the darkness to some degree that people will notice. I love the prayer of Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. We have what we need to bring that reality into the lives of every single person we meet. A light in a dark place cannot help but be noticed. The darker the place, the brighter the light seems, and people are drawn to the light. And love, love in a broken world cannot help but be noticed. If this world is getting darker, how much more will our light be noticed? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for myself. I pray that you would humble me, teach me to be Christ, to love like Christ, to serve like Christ. Father, we just, I just pray for each one of us here. I pray for the students as they go home um, in, two, in a couple days, uh, that as they go back among their old friends, 
and their family that uh, they would be light, that they would see people the way you see them. For the rest of us that live in this community permanently, that you would help us to be light, that people would be drawn not to us, but to you. God, please change our hearts. Please help us to see the need of you changing our hearts. And we will give you all praise, all glory, all credit for everything's accomplished for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.